Welcome to Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG, brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we'll investigate how purpose, vision, and values can guide your company's sustainability actions, behaviors, and mindsets. And we'll discuss their impact with the help of ESG-focused guests from around the globe. I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's get started. Today, we're speaking with Mahesh Krishnamurti. Hello, Mahesh. Good to have you here. Thank you. Okay. Mahesh is an ESG advisor, investor, and transformational leader with expertise in business development, strategic planning, decision support analysis, M&A, finance, risk management, and governance and leadership. His forte lies in the conceptualization and connecting the dots and complex solutions. We're going to talk about that. I like that notion. He's the founder of Buzz on Earth. Buzz on Earth is a sustainability hub dedicated to mainstreaming ecological welfare, human wellness, and coexistence. And you rank very high on YouTube, the top 10 sustainability programs. Also, since 2022, you've been a part-time senior advisor of ESG and international operations at VACO. Yeah, VACO, VACO. And VACO delivers critical talent solutions. We've talked to a couple people in talent. We've had talent clients ourselves. VACO delivers critical talent solutions to companies in the areas of consulting, project resources, executive search, direct hire, and strategic staffing with in a lot of important industries. You're also an advisor at the Arca Venture, which is a India-US border venture capital fund focused on supporting transitioning the technology for Indian B2B startups. That's exciting. You were a independent director of Yes Bank until 2022. You also served as a Consultant for over 14 years with RGP. That's a pretty big consulting company. You were the managing director of the global leadership team in India from 2007 to 2018. Mahesh holds a master's in business administration and finance from NYU Stern School of Business. Also a bachelor of science in economics from the London School of Economics and Political Science. But this is kind of interesting. Unlike me, (laughs) <laughs> Were you born in India, Mahesh? I was actually born in Thailand. Okay. Yeah, your childhood uh, seems very interesting. So, <laughs> so you were raised in Thailand and Switzerland with the United Nations upbringing. That's right. Oh, wow. And you speak English, French, multiple Indian language, and you have a latency in Thai. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so one thing I'm always curious is... When you were very young, a young boy, what did you dream of? What inspired you? What caught your interest when you were very, very young? That's an interesting question. I haven't been asked this for a very long time. So so you're taking me back in time in my own mind. I would say that when I was very young, I was obviously quite impressionable at that stage. And unfortunately, I wish we could all be equally impressionable at later stages in our lives as we might have been <laughs> right? in early days. But I was in Thailand. I was born there because my father was with the UN. And so that is what had me being there at that time. 
during the early stages of my life. And I would say that to that extent, I was always highly sensitized by way of contrast to my life in Thailand versus some of my other experiences, even at a young age, by just travels out of Thailand to other parts of the world. And by virtue of being Indian, my parents are both Indian. They were both Indian. I got the opportunity to, while living in Thailand, travel to India, of course, and then some other parts of the world. And it was always interesting for me to, even though I was very young, to try to figure out why all these differences and why all these cultural norms that differ from one country to the other, why these economic disparities and so on and so forth. I didn't have the answers, but I was always intrigued by that. And then you layer on top of that the United Nations exposure, which is multicultural, very international. My dad was someone who was steeped in helping the, back then we referred to them as third world economies, emerging, growing third world, developing countries. And so to that extent, I was always highly sensitized to that ideal, the ideal that is around the word equity, not equality, but equity, and is the world a fair place. And so from that perspective, I think I was steeped in that from an early stage of my life. And I always thought about those types of things. And as a result of that, I've been very comfortable in very different cultures and very different environments. Yeah, I bet. And so how did your interest and how did you arrive sort of in this ESG sort of world and developing talent and problem solving for very complex situations with companies? Right. The easiest thing for me to say would be to say that somehow I was, I dragged the sustainability Kool-Aid when I was eight years old and I ended up pursuing that track, but that would be the furthest thing I could say from the truth. <laughs> However, by virtue of my exposure in a developing country like Thailand back then, and then India, and some of those transitions, I realized that I had been very, very sensitized to the, I can now put it in the current framework, the current lingo, which is in the S, in the ESG. Mm -hmm. Yes. And developed a, a somewhat keen understanding of the S over a period of time. I had been exposed to the E, but I can't say that I had developed an understanding of the implications around E or around poor sanitation, poor hygiene standards, lack of clean water, air pollution, things like that, all of which I was exposed to, but I never really quite understood it at that time. But I think over a period of time, as I matured, as I grew, as I evolved, and as I started getting more and more exposure to business, those ideas started maturing in my own head and in my heart. I'd be the first to confess that I got swept by, swept away by capitalism to the extent that I went to my high school. My formative years were in Switzerland, where, again, because of the UN background, we shifted to Switzerland from Thailand, and I had my high school years there. And then I went to England for my undergrad, which is where I sort of had my, through my studies, my initial exposure to this whole notion. Well, I wouldn't say initial, through my UN upbringing, I understood the economics of development and, and poverty and things like that. But in a more structured, formal manner, I got the exposure in London to this idea of welfare economics. I had the good fortune of being tutored by a, the late Tibor Skitovsky, a great thinker in economics who talked about welfare economics and who also brought in the notion of psychology into economics. Because as I'm sure you would appreciate, economics is always based on this notion of rational behavior and rational well, right, behavior. Right. He argued that people are not rational and people are more instinctual. And yeah. so he brought that into the picture. Yeah. 
we do a lot of corporate branding work and there's the rational, but there's the emotional that we're trying to connect with. You got it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. you talked about very interesting things like hunger is a motivating factor, but so is boredom. Yeah. Right? And so now you start looking at things like Maslow theory, hierarchy of mm-hmm. needs. And you start appreciating the fact that maybe here in the West, we are spoiled. Oh. You know? <laughs> and all those basic needs have been taken care of, yes. food, yes. shelter, clothing, etc. But that maybe we're lacking some of the things that sit a little higher up in that pyramid or in that hierarchy. And so my notion of ESG, to get back to your question, Rocket, it has, has really been formed in some sense by the realities of different economies, markets, cultures, and Maslow's pyramid to the extent that perhaps that pyramid is a little bloated at the base in some of the Western countries and is very narrow at the base in some of the poorer countries of the world, but perhaps a little has a little bit more girth in the middle, you know, where we're talking about social networks, having people that you can rely on, informal networks, an informal social structure, which people count on heavily, certainly places like India. The average person in India may not have a lot of money and great shelter and a sense of safety and security, but they sure do have a lot of people they can rely on. Yes. So when you take ESG and juxtapose that into that sort of, in those types of scenarios, then the metrics can vary. The way you measure returns can vary and how you apply it can vary. Right. Well, that's very interesting. I also feel that like back in your early maturing of understanding maybe more of the social and the equity and the components of the economic development of a country. What has happened is it's really the interrelationships now where it's all connected, much, much more than we used to just call them the third world countries, but to understand all the dynamics of all those other parts is to me, the fabric, the wovenness of it all is extremely important. And I think that it's one of the reasons why now it's moved from being just sort of those people over there in a corporation who do some measurement and to it being more central for a number of reasons, for investment potential, for talent attraction, for, as you with the hub, talk about ecological welfare and that whole notion of the sustainability edge and it being the new growth sort of edge that's going to give a company an attraction and a competitive advantage. Absolutely. And that's well put, Rocket. I think if you look at the evolution, and we won't bore ourselves with the history of ESG and things like that, but it has evolved over a period of time all the way from, if you really think about it, hundreds of years ago, all the faiths that are out there, Hinduism, Islamism, Buddhism, Christianity, they all talked about doing good and doing well, or doing well and doing good, however you Mm -hmm. wish to look at it. So the notion is not new. I think what has happened over time is... And it's almost like the French call it uh, mille feuilles, which is a thousand layered cake. Ah. <laughs> and it's, it's obviously, a, you don't literally have a cake with thousand layers, but the point is it's a multi-layered cake. And I think ESG has evolved into a multi-layered cake. And each of those layers has different flavors to it, has different tastes. And so we have to learn to take a cake and enjoy that the cross-section 
with all the different flavors in it when we eat it and not just try to isolate the layers according to, is it just E or is it just S or is it just G, right? To your point. And so we've come all the way from the good old days when we had all the anti-war movement and we had Agent Orange and we had chemicals and companies that were manufacturing those chemicals to the oil spill, the big one in Prudhoe, Alaska, which was what, mm-hmm. in the 80s, to eventually... The Gulf. <laughs> exactly, right? And then yeah, eventually to, to the GRI, the Global Reporting Initiative and UN Global Compact and on and on and on, where who cares wins, right? That was what Kofi Annan from the UN, this Undersecretary General of the UN talked about. And that was really the first formal linkage in some sense of doing well and doing good and tying it to financial markets. And then it became more formalized from there to today where we crossed this chasm called COVID. And I think COVID has been transformational structurally. I think it has been transformational and it has caused people to reevaluate their own priorities in life. And so We've got work from home and no, I don't want to go into work and I get food delivered home. I don't cook anymore. And this has created significant changes in the environment. And then you've got the Gen X, Gen Z, millennials and boomers, right? Some of us are boomers. And so we're all trying to make sense of everything here and trying to find ways to measure what I would refer to as the externalities that so when a business is operating, yes, it has its gap and FASB and reporting and accounting impact, but it also has other forms of impact that were never taken seriously until more recently. And especially in countries like the United States, where people are pretty much, you never expected really to be impacted as much by by something to be for Los Angeles to stop. It was I never imagined in my lifetime there would be some kind of event where that would happen. It was the great disruptor. Yeah, the great disruptor, which made, I think, even people here begin to realize how real some of those dimensions are of, as well as the climate change here, where we're seeing it monthly, how different our weather is and how extreme from the fires to the tornadoes and hurricanes that used to be something, you know, once every five, 10 years is now something that's multiple times a year. It's becoming real to people and not just theoretical. And Mm -hmm. I think that is changing the game a little bit. The thing that I, when you talk about doing well and doing good and being well, sometimes I feel like too much of the conversation is about doing less bad rather than really designing for continuously doing good and it being profit centers rather than things that are impacting a business that are expensive or, you know, that they think. And I also don't, another thing that I often think about is how you hold people accountable. Because, and their progress, like that they don't, they come out and say, like Gary showed me yes last week or this week, he repeated a post of actually someone who had been a guest on our podcast. And what did anesthesia say? Yeah, and this the, is the, so typical. The article was talking about how BP slows transition to renewable energy as there is an oil bonanza continues. Mm-hmm. And so that's just, 
I mean, there's a lot of hypocrisy to this thing. There's inaccuracy of reporting on metrics going on here. And it's something that we wrote about a long time ago in a manifesto well, uh, we're just fed up with these greedy companies whose sole motive is profit for an elite few. And here they're right back doing that right now. Right. So they claim that they're going, everything's going to net zero by 2050, but then they're dialing back their sustainable, their investments in sustainable energy. So how do you keep up with it and really know what they're well, doing quarter to quarter and if they're staying true to their claims, or are they just leaving it for another group of management people that will be five years from now and sort of saying, well, that will be their problem to pull it off by 2050. And it's frustrating. I mean, it's frustrating. I mean, it's encouraging that it's become more mainstream and C-suite are having to focus on it. But it's also frustrating because everybody is, you know, every time I pull up Google, it says carbon neutral since 2007. And I think, so what? You're buying credits? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, really? I just don't know. And your ecological welfare, I mean, these agricultural companies, the mining companies, the plastic producing companies, I mean, the fossil fuel companies, they're all spinning it. But- where do we go to some, and we we help companies with their ESG reports. So we design and produce them. We're involved in interviewing the subject matter experts, but I was sort of interested in your background of providing that talent to companies that help them with yet an internal program and ESG started internally at companies. What is your ability to connect the dots in very complex situations. What is your impression of the CEOs and what impact can you really have? Yeah, it's a complex question, right? With complex answers that I'll try to simplify a little bit. It also depends very much on the scenario and the situation. So if you are looking at a large listed company versus a company that may be large or maybe that large, but that is not listed, the scenarios are very different. Right. If you're looking at a large listed company, there's obviously regulatory pressure on that listed company to disclose and to be transparent up to a certain level. And I think the onus on them to start disclosing more and more and more is growing. So to my mind, whether it's just a ticking of the boxes or whether there is distortion of what is being reported, I think the just the act of disclosing is a minimum first step. It's the lowest common denominator. You've got to take that step because you're effectively claiming some sort of transparency and you're essentially saying, come look at my books or come verify my claims and check it out for yourself. So that so at one level, I think that's very important and that needs to be done. Now, by the same token, what happens is you are potentially gaming the system. So you come up with metrics that you believe the street wants to hear or that investors want to hear. And you find ways to rationalize metrics that look very good and eventually try to pump up the valuation or the stock price of the firm, especially in the short term, by doing so. Now, I would argue that over time, 
the market is very smart. In the short term, the market is not that smart. Over time, those unfair arbitrage opportunities will get discovered and will be nullified. But in the very short term, we have essentially the tail wagging the dog in the sense that you've got ESG wagging something that's much bigger and the dog being business and perceptions of profitability and perceptions of value enhancement, value creation, and so on and so forth. I think over time, the tail will morph into the dog and ESG will become the dog in a very positive sense. Now, here's the thing. We have institutional investors, we have hedge funds, we have fund managers out there, and we have a lot of brilliant researchers, people who are doing fundamental, solid research in this field, and we have to have those folks. We need to continue. We need to see them continuing to do this because decisions that are being taken today are far more irrational and based much more on emotion and tastes than they are on fundamental economic and financial theory. So if I am someone who likes green companies, and I see an annual report that lays claim to, I am super green, I've done this and I've done that, I may pay a premium for them, even though some of those benefits have already been incorporated and are included in the cash flows because Mm -hmm. of my taste. And the flip side could also be the case where I underpay them, even though they are already doing very well and are very green, First, because of some irrational perceptions that I have of that sector. The EV sector is a perfect example of that. I think a lot of electric vehicle companies, Tesla is probably a good one, and we could debate this for hours, but I think in 2021 and 22, the EV sector got penalized because, and if I am a meme type of investor and I'm a cult investor and I say, wow, Elon Musk, right? He's a genius. I do believe he is a genius, but is Tesla worth as much as people are willing to pay for Tesla today? Most people would say probably not. It's highly questionable, at least in the short term. And you can define the short term as the next two, three, four years, especially when you look around, you see GM and all these other large Toyota and all these other large Volkswagen, Audi, Mercedes-Benz. They're all, they've been around a long time and they manufacture many more cars overall. But Tesla is the biggest manufacturer of electric vehicles. And in the first, there was a really interesting opinion piece in the L.A. Times recently, how somebody had wrote in and talked about how they, you know, they used to have pride driving their Tesla as a symbol for this green economy and that they were an early adopter and this sort of thing. And the person in this uh, piece said, Now, I'm embarrassed to drive it down the house street because let's look at the S of the ESG. He's treated his workers. I mean, how many lawsuits there are against them and the racism and all sorts of things that have been disclosed by other workers, up at least at the Fremont plant here in California. It's like, whoa, now it's like projecting a whole other thing than environmental care that you've had driving the Tesla. And I think that is a danger almost. Um, Again, you have to look at the facts. You have to go back and look at the facts to really be able to tell whether a company is something other than your notion. No, exactly, exactly. And if you look at some of the ESG rating agencies, they rated Exxon higher than Tesla. And was that right or wrong? Some people would argue that that was wrong. Others would say, you know, that's right, because mining for lithium is an extractive process, and that process generates significant GHG. So we're learning, we're moving along, and I think we're moving in the right direction. 
Well, I think you're helping people learn. And I was fascinated with your business, Buzz on Earth. And one description of it, it's a one-stop shop for sustainability stories, innovations, thought leaderships, and eco-friendly brands. Buzz on Earth has its audience in 190 countries and 8,000 cities growing every day. We are defining sustainability edge as a new growth imperative. Tell us what you're doing with Buzz on Earth. Well, you know, in fact, to go back to one of your earlier questions, I would say that given all my career, professional, and personal experiences, and referring back to that thousand-layer cake, the milfei cake, right? Buzz on Earth it was the first instance where I was able to jump in with both my feet. And by the way, I'm not the founder. I'm a founding advisor. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right? Just to be very clear on that. The team there is fantastic. They are the founders. They're the ones who put 150% of the energy into getting Buzz it on the ground. Absolutely. And it's still a new venture. It's an early stage venture. But what do we do? We do some things that are similar to what you do, which is storytelling, sustainability branding, and helping some large organizations that are out there that are doing good work, that are in some hardcore infrastructure sectors, such as cement, for example, or in FMCG, consumer goods, that are doing good things in terms of recycling, waste management, green cement, for example, green construction, and Mm -hmm. so on. And what BOE does is really to try to help them get that story out in a manner that connects emotionally with the masses. So who's going to go read a dry, boring annual report that has a section at a very... Absolutely. If you suffer from insomnia, you'd go read that. The point is... It doesn't have any color. It has no character. It has nothing there that, that would draw you or me to right. read it. So one of the things that BOE has been doing is to put some color into that, put some life, put some emotion into what they're doing and to transmit that and to kind of portray that in a way that is more appealing to you. And, and I would probably add, bring out the reality, not distorting anything, but just for making it more engaging. I was just writing about that this morning is that when you have like a 100, 150 page report and you have all these tables, you have all this data, how do you really, what do you really take away? And so what do you really remember? What's really relevant to you? And so I think that's exactly right. It's bringing it to life. It's making it relevant. And I think a lot of this communications around sustainability, ESG, just going to start to break down by stakeholder and really communicate what's really relevant to them. To people. Yeah. That's right. Making it more human. But we have all, we have different interests in how do I talk to an investor versus a potential employee about who we are? We are one entity, but we have certain things that are of interest that are true, but that are of interest to our different audiences. Very much so. And this whole discussion around shareholder versus stakeholder. And I think you touched on it earlier, Rocket, but the, the idea of doing less bad versus just plain old doing good. If you really think through the supply chain process, it doesn't matter how many Bs you have in it, B to B to B to B. It doesn't matter. Ultimately, you have the C at the end of that process. The C is the ultimate consumer of whatever it is that businesses engage in amongst themselves or directly with consumers. So you can have a B to C as well. The point is that This whole discussion about shareholder primacy, I think to a certain extent has been misunderstood because shareholders ultimately are are very much 
concerned about stakeholders by virtue of the fact that ultimately it goes to the sea. Whatever a business does ultimately hits the sea, right? And so to that extent, I think, and also to the extent that that I, as a manager or a leader of a business, do have agreements with employees. I do have agreements with vendors. I have agreements with clients. And those are protected via contracts, certain legal boundaries. So from that perspective, I am bringing the stakeholders into that discussion as well. So in some sense, I think we're being very unfair to shareholders because when you sift through all that, the shareholder is ultimately also a representative in some sense of the stakeholders. However, when a manager is focused only on profit and in the short term, then one could argue that the, the fuller stakeholder interests are not being captured and are not being taken into consideration. And this goes into the whole Adam Smith and Wealth of Nations and Invisible Hand and the Milton Friedman who kind of came out and said profit's the only motive, only socially responsible motive. And then you get to Joseph Stiglitz and others who came out and said, well, there are externalities and those need to be priced and those need to be understood. So I do, a, I run a business, I impact you. Am I compensating you for that? And do I understand what my impact on you is, right? So we've now come to this thing called ESG, which I think is wonderful. And I think it's amazing. It's all about enlightened capitalism. And I like to think in terms of spirals, not pendulums. No, so it's not as if a pendulum went from A to B and back to A. The pendulum goes from A to B and then it goes to C. And then from C, it goes to D. Why? Because the ground has shifted. The scenario mm -hmm. has changed. The context is different. So while what Adam Smith may have said some back in the mid-1700s, the principle is true, but the application is different now. And so you've got to take it into the right context. And I think that's where ESG has come in. And I think it's a wonderful thing. It's a great thing. Confusing, very confusing to all of us, but we learn as we go. And I think it's a moral imperative. I think the moral imperative is here to stay. And now what we're saying is, hey, we've got to deal with this. Now let's also fully understand that there are business benefits, business-related yeah. benefits to this as well. Yeah, the moral imperative, something we're probably not going to talk about here today, but a big part of what we do is really help clients find out what are their real core beliefs. What do they, what do they really believe as human beings and as a collective, as a company? And what are those moral imperatives? What are those ethics? What are they of... What's really at the core of them as human beings? And how can that pull through the business and the business? It's not a new notion. It's been talked about for a long, long time. So, but I think it's becoming more and more and more important. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that's related to that is how just having a service or product that's a good service or product, which 15 years ago, 10 years ago, is all people were looking for. People are looking now for companies that are demonstrating their own values, and they're willing to pay that little bit of premium to support a company that stands for something that they believe in. That's something else that I think has pressured the companies to take ESG a little bit more seriously, although they're still walking that fine line of not wanting to take a stand on many yeah. issues. That's right. I've had discussions with C-suites, board members, in my travels and on my journey. And one of the things that I've discovered is when you have a very authentic face-to-face -face 
conversation that is technically not being recorded and it's not being transcripted legal Mm -hmm. style. You have very, very meaningful conversations and you have conversations that go precisely to what you just described. This is who I am. And at the core, I'm a good person. I don't want to harm anybody. I want everyone to prosper. I want myself to prosper as well along the way. And therefore, I want our stakeholders and our shareholders to prosper. I want employees to feel happy. I want our suppliers, I want our supply chain to feel enlightened and, and to succeed. The, the, the real challenge is in having the fortitude and the courage to stand up and say that. And this is where the Patagonias of the world, the Ben and Jerry's of the world. I was just going to um, refer to them. Yes. Right. And I would even, if you go overseas, you go international and then maybe Ikea, I don't know. There's been some controversies around mm-hmm. Ikea, but Tata, Tata in India would definitely fall yeah. into that space. Yeah. In terms of being solid to their purpose and mission, and even their ownership structure is unique. Their own, and we won't get into that now, but so they're owned by trusts, by a couple of trusts. And so the entire hue is a sort of a philanthropic hue, although it's for profit. Yeah. Right. We had the pleasure of speaking with Balaji Ganapathy there. And uh, Tata oh, Consultants. TCS. TCS guy. Yeah. 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 And, nice and, and I mean, it was really interesting. He says, I come from the land of Gandhi, but now I live in the land of King. And so he was referring to Dr. Martin Luther King. And of all the individuals he could have picked to how to identify America or the United States was Dr. Martin Luther King. That was really interesting. And we got on the conversation of purpose, another big topic. And there's been a lot of purpose washing for way too long and too much BS out there. But he talked about Tata and their purpose is about community, making their communities better. Nation building. They usually talk about nation building as well. They're there to enhance the local economy, people. Yep. And the founders original mission is is their mission today yeah indeed so we got to kind of wrap up here i we could talk for hours on this i would love to but two questions today at this moment what is the one thing that you would want to change today if you had a magic wand in the sustainability industry i would want people to be more empathetic and be more caring and be kinder because my philosophy is that When you're kind to people and when you show authentic, genuine interest in people and what they're doing and what they have to say, I think you bring out their authenticity. And when you have authentic conversations, you're building a very strong foundation for the future that is robust, a a foundation that is robust enough to handle a fire in the Amazon forest or a gigantic earthquake or, for that matter, any other doom and gloom economic scenario that yeah. you may be looking at. And this goes to this whole idea of that 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 social network aspect of Maslow's pyramid. The right? collective we've all, action. We've all got each other. At the end of the day, I lose my shirt. Okay, that's fine. But maybe you'll loan me your shirt, right? And so it's this idea of trust, authenticity, being genuine and saying, look, I don't know. If somebody asks me something, I'm willing to say, I don't know. I'll go find out for you. So I think that's what it's all about. If I could wave one magic wand, and I would love for that to be inculcated in the, the whole millennial group, the Gen X, the Gen Z group, because I think there's going back to this whole idea. Blaise Pascal, French philosopher, scientist, many, many years ago, 300 plus years ago said, and I'm not quoting him exactly here, but something to the effect that 
the greatest evil to befall mankind is man's inability to stay idle. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know? My uncle used to say to me, I'll stop worrying about you when you can sit on a rock and do nothing. There you go. Feel exactly. good about yourself. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So when we're living in an environment where there's plenty, there's an abundance of food and clothing and great fashion designs out there and fancy cars. What do you do when you get bored? And you know what? People are getting bored and they don't know what to do with the leisure time. And so what happens here is they get influenced in the wrong ways. So they go into drugs, they go into opioids, they go into stuff, alcohol, stuff that, and society is breaking up. And this goes back to Biden's talk last night at the State of the Union. It was all about the S. It was all about the big S. Yeah. The collective action. Fantastic. And that for the world is the bottom line with sustainability. We've got to, I mean, people and you being from India, your parents being from India, and you involved in lots of these startups and transitioning companies from India with their technologies. When people say to me, oh, well, you know, if we save this energy over here, we've still got India and China doing, you know, you've got to still care about the one place that we all share. Yeah, I may sound a little idealist and you could call me an idealist, but if you don't shoot for that holy grail, you won't even make it halfway there. Yeah, yeah. I agree. So, and, 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 and just a quick point here, as I'm an executive in residence at NYU, Stern School of Business, mm-hmm. and it's super thrilling to see that MBAs with 10 years, 15 years of experience are now looking to transition into sustainability. Wow from very hard-nosed capitalistic jobs in investment banking and and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's all heading in the right direction. Great. Well, it's been great talking with you. Thank you, Mahesh. Great. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Sustainable Minds wherever you get your podcasts. And please do live a review if you like what we're doing. It helps others discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to find out more about how we can help you evolve your corporate brand, culture, and ESG, head to bakerbrand.com. See you on the next episode of Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG.